understanding progress and inequality against the backdrop of globalization. Christian Katarski. The complex relationship between progress and inequality. The world has improved, especially over the last three decades, as the forces of globalization have taken the reins in various areas, such as trade, finance, education, technology, and migration. We live longer, healthier, wealthier, freer, more educated, and more comfortable lives than ever before. However, there are millions of people still living in abject poverty and despair wrought by illness, struggle, and death. Such is the complex tale of the relationship between the forces of progress and inequality. Inequality often arises as a consequence of progress. Not everybody gains freedom from destitution, obtains access to modern amenities, or receives the opportunity to live a more meaningful life at the same time. In a sense, inequality can both improve and impede progress. The specific outcome depends on whether it serves as an invisible guide to empowerment for all those suffering from economic impoverishment, or it protects the standing of those who want to kick away the ladder of progress for those left behind. Yes, inequality could cause serious harm if left unattended, but only insofar as when it represents unfair inequality, which denotes the lack of both freedom from poverty and equality of opportunity. This distinction basically boils down to disentangling circumstance and effort as determinants of an individual's income. Circumstantial factors are those outside the control of the individual, such as race, gender, and parental wealth, while effort denotes those factors under individual control, which can in turn affect income, like work ethics or educational attainment, once an individual has been given the opportunity to learn and has realized a personal desire to excel. The fraction of variation in income, which can be attributed to circumstance, is further conceptualized as inequality of opportunity or unfair inequality. On the other hand, freedom from poverty is attained when individuals' earnings fall under the threshold of 60% of the country-specific median equivalized disposable household income. Nobody could reasonably object to the pursuit of freedom from poverty and equality of opportunity. One could also differentiate between good and bad inequality, analogous to the distinction between good and bad cholesterol. Good inequality creates incentives for growth, as good cholesterol is protective against heart disease by removing plaque from the arteries. Let's take technological development as an example. The existing experience teaches us that technological breakthroughs help the overwhelming majority of people by expanding the range of their capabilities and freedoms. The very process of cutting-edge growth or growth along the technological and innovation frontier, as opposed to catch-up growth achieved by the adoption of existing technologies which shrink the inequality gap, creates inequality that is analogous to good cholesterol. On the other hand, inequality which arises as a consequence of rent-seeking activities that only redistribute the size of the existing cake instead of enlarging it, together with monopolies and certain privileges showered only upon the politically well-connected, definitely weaken the fabric of society. This is equivalent to the bad variant of cholesterol, 
which puts a person at higher risk of heart disease by clogging up the arteries. This distinction demonstrates that the relationship between economic progress and inequality is not linear and is in conflict most of the time. Everything depends on the particular context, shaped by institutions, whether they are open, inclusive and depersonalised, and whether their antidotes prevail. For example, Oxfam's credo is to confront the inequality that keeps people trapped in poverty, which might do more harm than good because the fight against poverty should always come first. Excessive focus on inequality, regardless of its roots, might easily undercut progress for all if it leads to growth-stunting policies. Exactly this confusion between inequality and poverty comes straight out of the lump fallacy, which views wealth as a finite resource, instead of something created in a positive-sum game. When all is said and done, Equality is not a fundamental component of well-being unless its absence comes with mass impoverishment. One should also not conflate inequality with unfairness, which is among the most misunderstood issues in the social sciences. A study by a group of Yale University psychologists elaborates that when fairness and equality clash, people prefer fair inequality over unfair equality. In the Erasers for Room Cleaning studies, children were told that Dan and Mark cleaned up their room and were to be rewarded with erasers. However, there were five erasers, so an even split was impossible. The children overwhelmingly reported that the experimenters should throw away the fifth eraser rather than create an unequal division. Nevertheless, when told that Dan did more work than Mark, the children were quite comfortable with giving three erasers to Dan and two to Mark. These children were fine with inequality, so long as they considered it to be fair. We could easily claim the same for adults, as evidenced in Norton and Ariely's 2001 study of ideal income distribution in the US. Participants claimed that, in a perfect society, individuals in the top 20% should have more than three times as much money as individuals in the bottom 20%. The majority understands that unequal abilities, effort, and moral deservingness imply that a fair distribution in society would always be unequal. And as long as there is a belief in social mobility, inequality will be tolerated. However, the present-day narratives, especially those produced and supported by left-wing media outlets, think tanks, and scientists, have focused excessively on the vices related to income and wealth inequality in a small sample of Anglo-Saxon societies. A case in point is a 2009 book, The Spirit Level, Why More Equal Societies Almost Always Do Better, by British epidemiologists Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. The central thesis of the book is that inequality has a pernicious effect on societies, eroding trust, increasing anxiety, causing illness and encouraging excessive consumption. The author's basic claim is that an individual's happiness depends on their relative position in comparison to other members of society as a reference group, whereby income inequality breeds status anxiety. They also attribute a reduction in other variables' values, such as physical health, mental health, drug abuse, education, imprisonment, obesity, social mobility and violence to inequality. 
No matter how appealing their results appear, especially to those on the left of the political spectrum, one should note that negative outcomes attributed to inequality in the study are not sufficiently controlled for by other variables, such as income level and poverty. In other words, dire consequences normally attributed to inequality, such as a large prison population or high rates of violence, might be far better explained by different levels of income and poverty, or by poorly functioning political institutions that disrespect basic human rights. Once again, one should delicately differentiate between good and bad inequality. Simple and crude redistribution cannot help us succeed in fighting global poverty and raising living standards. The combined wealth of the world's 2,153 billionaires is $8.7 trillion. If divided among all individuals around the world, each would only receive a paltry sum of $1,160. Arguably, the destiny of the world's poor depends more upon sustainable and inclusive economic growth, led by managed globalization, than the rate rich countries choose to tax their wealthiest citizens. We need to be wary of this excessive proclivity for redistribution as a single solution to the world's problems. Lifting millions of people out of poverty is not akin to an engineering problem, such as fixing a broken machine. Nobel laureate Angus Deaton calculated that Africa's median growth per capita, real purchasing power parity, or PPP, in the period between 1960 and 2010, was the lowest for five-year intervals when median per capita foreign aid was at its highest. Hence, poverty is not a result of a lack of resources, but primarily of poor institutions, poor government, and a lack of freedom. Honest governments, competitive and open markets, independent judiciaries, and well-defined and protected property rights are indispensable ingredients in the recipe for growth. Only between the alternative poles of anarchy and tyranny can liberal democracies flourish. Hence, the state is required to protect people from subjugation at the hands of others in society, but the state can also become an instrument of violence and repression, both of which negatively affect growth prospects. Falling prey to technocratic hubris and the simple notion of redistribution blinds us from seeing that a lack of respect for freedom, not only on the part of governments in the developed and the developing world, but also on the part of the donors and agencies administering aid, works as a key obstacle to shared progress. Economic and political freedoms serve as a means for empowerment, Regardless of the dire symptoms of unfair inequality in some societies, this state of affairs should not be equated with general patterns and the direction of progress across the globe. It is exactly this pessimistic outlook, narrowly focused on vaguely conceived inequality, which has unwittingly overshadowed the vast improvement of humanity. Indeed, the world has embarked on a great historical journey of extreme poverty reduction, especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall at the hands of the free-spirited citizens of East and West Germany in 1989. What has changed for the better since this watershed moment, if anything? A detailed account of the progress achieved worldwide is the subject of our next section.